Hello, and welcome to another uh, MetaViews Jam. I mean, normally we run salons, but we're kind of experimenting with different event formats as we sort of evolve into running more online events. And today's session is a conversation in the traditional way that we tend to try to structure these events. Um, but it's a structured conversation and that our good friend uh, Vasiliki Bednar from Regs to Riches has joined us once again. And uh, we also have our uh, very good friend David Ryan, who uh, has brought his wisdom and expert commentary as well. But rather than do the kind of general salon, uh, we're going to really try to establish this as a kind of conversation, both with us on screen and, and hopefully with those of you watching at home or at work or you've pulled over on the side of the road to tune in. I don't want to make any assumptions, but we want to talk today about the potential for public platforms. The idea of, you know, if we were to do the Uber of the public sector or an Uber for public service delivery or for public problems, what would that look like? How could that work? And, you know, this is where I, I will say at the outset, uh, Vass and I co-published uh, an issue yesterday uh, with Regs to Riches, your newsletter, MetaViews, my newsletter. But Vass, I, I kind of have to give you full credit in that really I feel you were the primary author and I was kind of your foil in that I was you know, uh, both very interested and fascinated by the issue, but I, wa I wanted to start today by giving you the kind of lion's share of the credit a as an excuse to start off this conversation of, of asking what, what was it about this subject that caught your curiosity? And, and why do you think that, that uh, platforms for the public sector, or as I'm calling the potential for public platforms, exists and, and what about it should we be looking at today in our conversation in terms of building off the, the, the newsletter we co-published? Well, you're very kind to say that. And I definitely think it was a team event. It's fun to write and think with you. I'm always learning something. Um, really, the, the hinge was people criticizing the, a couple of new platforms for personal support workers, PSWs. And PSWs are public sector workers. It's the publicly regulated profession, somewhat new. I believe it was created around the same time that we created early childhood educators, ECEs, uh, that you see often in a childcare daycare setting, um, and sometimes in uh, full day kindergarten as well. So, you know, people were reacting to, hey, I recognize that a private entity has created a platform to connect workers, right, with maybe extra shifts, um, or from a, you know, connecting them close to a ge ge geographical level. And our, our initial, the initial sentiment was extremely negative, right? That this is naturally bad um, just because there could be a profit motive uh, or, you know, trying to go under the mechanics, which I actually think is good. I think meeting a new uh, website, app, technology with some skepticism, thinking really about the business model, who it helps, who, who it harms is something we should always do. Um, but I don't and didn't agree that there's no space for the application of the mechanics of a platform with publicly sector, uh, public publicly regulated jobs or in the public sector or built by government. I'll stop rambling in a second, but one of the things you and I chatted a lot about were just at the basic level, there's a lot of matching issues. So let's not forget these companies started, they're solving what they've decided 
what they've identified as a problem in the sector. But it's a it's a public problem that's being solved through private means. And maybe that's a great stopgap. Let's learn from it. Um, but yeah, there's tons of matching issues, teacher allocations, substitute teachers, training medical doctors. Even now, you can imagine in, in the context of the pandemic, you know, there are these call outs for people trained as nurses, people who have retired as, as, as nurses, people who have the expertise. How do we find them? How do we find efficiencies and kind of match those opportunities without changing the wage structures? I'm, I'm interested in thinking about that. I'm interested in thinking about it with people who know more than me and can, can imagine it better than I can. Well, and, and the nature of crises is that that's when you don't have time to think about this stuff. And, and it almost feels that there is a, a kind of technological determinism to platforms that if we don't think about them ahead of time, people are just going to gravitate towards them or they're going to fill a kind of policy void in that rather than figure out this matchmaking, rather than figuring out, hey, we're, you know, we're, we're running out of staff. How do we find retired staff? How do we connect with with students, staff in training? And that's where I think you did kind of identify a silver lining. Hmm. And on the one hand, we're seeing an increase in algorithmic literacy, yeah. right? That the, as soon as people start talking about a platform, even just users of platforms all of a sudden start thinking, hey, yeah, I use Uber, Uber. I, I use, you know, a, a food delivery service. I get it. Mm. Let alone policy people who are now starting to recognize that there, there's an ecosystem of effects that come from using these types of platforms. Yeah. But I, I also think you touched upon, uh, for lack of a, a, a better word, I'm thinking like a boogeyman or, or a specter that has haunted the policy world, yeah. which is privatization, right? Yeah. Which is there's a lot of people, rightfully so, have been very hesitant of what traditionally is the responsibility of the public sector being outsourced or moved to the private sector. And they rightfully see platforms as another potential frontline for that. And I think what we're trying to do here is say, independent from that concern, we can look at platforms and imagine platforms that are entirely in the public sector, that are entirely controlled and integrated into the role of public organizations. So we, you know, we can think of these tools separate from the larger legitimate ideological debates and in looking at these tools, see opportunities for better public service delivery, for better public organization. And I think that's the, the real opportunity for public platforms is to come at it the way a civil servant would rather than necessarily a politician would right. in terms of recognizing the, the, the functionality and utility that it could offer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, another part of this context that we're in right now is also, and you've written about the vaccine hunting, you know, the allocation of uh, vaccines at pharmacies, signing up wait lists. And I think it's easy for some people to imagine a one-stop shop. We have these different visual representations uh, Google Canada partnered with governments, partnered with the provincial government. I think their map is super useful and it shows pharmacies near me um, that do have the vaccine, but there's no centralized list. There's no centralized allocation. And I think this is leading to what feels like a little bit of a Hunger Games situation. And I say that facetiously, but also with some honesty in that, you know, people are calling pharmacies individually, trying to crowdsource information online um in a way that's exhausting in a way that 
and honestly, I'd be very comfortable um, if there was a centralized platform that just spit out to me when I'm eligible, what pharmacy, and told me what time to be there. I'd well, be very glad. Yeah. Well, and and I think what the vaccine hunters episode really illustrates is in a, a, a digital world, in the era of the internet, literacy is such an enabling factor. Yeah. And I have a certain amount of awareness of my privilege as a cyberpunk, that because I have an advanced technological literacy, it's really easy for me to find a vaccine appointment. It's really easy for me to navigate the government's, you know, employment wage subsidy forms. Like there's all sorts of advantages that allow me to leverage available systems and policies in a way that I don't think is fair to people who don't have those literacies. And so the benefit of a platform, the benefit of a centralization is it affords those capabilities to people who may not have the literacy to get it on their own. Right. And it, it addresses equity issues that, you know, and, and I, I'm, as you know, getting deep into automation and I'm thinking, you know, I would love to have a bot that found the vaccines for me, or I would love to have a bot that figured out which pharmacies had my medicines in stock. And yeah. so these platforms to me speak to a, a need to maintain universality and, and maintain equity in a way that as humans in an increasingly complicated society to ask the individual to do that is kind of just not fair. Thoughts? I mean, it's, it's not fair. It's unusual. It definitely feels very unusual given the time that we had to plan and kind of also to imagine and perhaps crowdsource, right? It doesn't, Crowdsourcing ideas doesn't only have to happen through uh, detailed procurement mechanisms. I think people, Canadians are very creative. People expect to be asked for their expertise. People are thinking out loud. And now we have this kind of hasty, angry, retroactive imagining of, you know, why not this? I wish this happened. And people expressing frustration. It kind of feels like a really bad game of Pokemon Go. Um, mm -hmm. My father texted me this morning and was like, hey, you know, I'm hearing that some different pharmacies have some extra vaccine at the end of the day. Uh, honey, maybe you can walk around Toronto to some pharmacies today. And like, I love him, right? That's so nice. He heard that. He wanted to share that information. But the information is also like the tip is so bad. Yeah. Um, Maybe he's right. Like maybe I should at four forty-five just stroll stroll to some shoppers and see what's going on. But, you but know, if you could do that. it digitally, right? If you could yeah. do it from the safety of your own home, that's a completely different scenario, right? Totally different scenario. Totally different scenario. No. So then it's kind of like, why didn't we get there? Why didn't we get that extra step? Well, let's also be honest. Bandwidth. We're all going through this. I imagine anyone who's in a digital service context right now is working, you know, more than ever before, juggling family demands, trying to maintain their own mental and physical health. Um, there's always a design feature that maybe got stripped or, you know, we didn't have the capacity for. So I hope that our imagining and remarks for anyone watching or listening yeah. don't seem that, you know, don't think that. Uh, the experts building these things uh, haven't thought of it or aren't intelligent enough to. By no means, let's just address. You know, if there's no public demand. If we have a, if we have an inherent bias against any kind of tool that's a platform because of 
some of the behaviors of dominant platforms that have colored and come to characterize what we think of them. Um, let's just also call out that does a, does a disservice. The platform economy is complex um, and it's also historically kind of young. So, yeah. you know, it's let's let's write some of that history and let's yeah. add a new chapter. And to your point, let's add as a context to our conversation today that we are describing future capabilities, right? That we're kind of, you know, playing the role as designers, both on a policy level and on a technology level. But I think part of the purpose of our conversation today, part of the purpose of, of co-publishing our issues is our friends in the respective digital services need more support from the political level. Right. Yeah. They need more resources. They, they need more recognition on, on a public level because th there's it's bad that they are stretched thin. It's bad that they're overworked and stressed out. You know, we want to be investing in these capabilities. And I think that's part of the role. And, and I do you know want to acknowledge our, our audience who are playing their own role. So I, I want to bring in a couple of comments from Sharita, who both asked the question, what is the relationship between a public sector worker platform and the public sector worker regulatory body, which I, I think is a, fa a fascinating question because sometimes that might be implicit that the regulator operates the platform, but it, it shouldn't be. I, I think that's that could vary depending on the context. And then Sharita pointed out a platform for vaccine availability is different than a gig platform, yes. which, which is, is, is correct, but it also notes the nuance Right, that different platforms, different purposes, different configurations of those platforms, different outcomes. So I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on both the question and the comment. Well, say government were to build a platform for vaccine availability, my bet is you would not see the word platform, it would be called like portal, something similar. Um, and absolutely, you're right, let's, let's recognize that a platform for for labor is fundamentally different than for an item. And also, you know, if we want to stick on the labor side, you know, if we're upset, if we're so upset with those personal support worker platforms, let's also be upset that often these workers aren't salaried. They're not paid for their time in transit. They're paid per visit, right? They're already, their employment structure is already very kind of gigified. So, you know, let's zoom out there's an appetite or ability to take on additional shifts. You know, we should want any of those additional shifts to be, you know, at their choice, um, you know, demonstrated with geography, maybe can help you kind of plan a route, but let's also make sure we're having the right conversations about the employment structures and salaries of workers that are also uh, early childhood educators too. Like we created these jobs, they're very underpaid. Yeah. But I mean, you raise an interesting point that I think builds off your original insight around algorithmic literacy, that I think our understanding of these platforms is increasing dramatically. And what you just described is the kind of values that are often implicit in these platforms, but could be very specific. Now, I'll take a moment to give a shout out to CoJazz77 for joining us and giving the follow. But what I thought when you described, when you first described to me the scenario of like the matchmaking or the care workers, you know, I thought of the potential for surge pricing, 
right? Because especially in a pandemic, there's going to be a lot of demand for care workers. And there might be a shortage of them who are like, you know what? I don't feel like going into people's homes. It's too dangerous. So all of a sudden, their wages start going up due to supply and demand issues. Because instead of that being regulated by a central employer who's incentivized to keep wages down, when it's regulated by a central platform, who perhaps a clear value is to increase wages, is to reward and attract people to the field. And that could include surge pricing so that, you know, during a certain period, nurses nurses who are going to go work in an ICU which right now I bet there are a lot of nurses who are going, you know what, for what I'm getting paid, I'm not sure I do want to work in an ICU. You add in some surge pricing, maybe we should be paying nurses 10 times their normal rate to be working in an ICU in the midst of a pandemic. Again, I'm speaking out of turn here, but I'd love to see these labor dynamics uh, as a potential side effect of these platforms. Yeah, I think the labor dynamics, it's hard for us to think of platforms, you know, boosting, tending to boost wages. I think if you had a publicly regulated or offered platform in that regard, another benefit is that you could set the floor, right? So instead of the platform being a race to the bottom in terms of, you know, who's going to undercut someone else on price, you could actually say the minimums, the standard hourly wage is this amount, um, but there can be more. You can set your own, what you're willing to pay, what you're looking to pay. Um, it would be interesting. It would be fascinating as a pilot. And you're right. There are other times of demand, not just a pandemic, holidays, weather. I don't know how, yeah. I, I know the terms of how people tend to be employed, but I also know that, you know, for the kind of employee that's looking for, you know, looking to achieve this, this thing that's very elusive and seductive with work, which is autonomy, it can be a form of additional autonomy, right? Gig work, um, I think gig work does work quite well when it's not core income, when it is something that's complementary. So again, if there are workers that have the appetite and interest in taking on additional shifts and solving for some of those gaps, I do think there's a responsibility to facilitate that matching in an ethical way. And if the public sector is not going to do it, let's be real, the private sector is. And the best we can then do is ask those those actors to be as responsible as possible. But we cannot completely write them off or dismiss them just because they're private. That's not going to get us anywhere. Agreed. Although Sharita raised an interesting point, which here at MetaViews we have written about in the past, which is co-op platforms, right? Yes. And, and, And platforms being... You know, neither public sector nor traditional private sector, but, you know, like worker owned and member owned. So imagine as a user, as a driver, you sign up to Uber, right? And and you're committing to the cooperative. You're becoming a shareholder of the platform. Now, I I also, uh, interestingly enough, I shouted out CoJazz77, and it turns out Mm -hmm. that it's our good friend Sumit who is an active uh, member of MetaViews, very valued. So I want to read Sumit's uh, comment and question because I think it really speaks to our, 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 our what we're trying to get out of the conversation. Sumit asks, given the Canadian government is still figuring out the adoption of digital identity technologies, could that potentially be a cause for concern slash resistance around the public sector taking on the potential, uh, the potential offered by the platform economy? 
Do you see digital identity integration as an important part of this conversation around leveraging the platform economy? Because I mean, it, it's a so really interesting part when you reflect that what we haven't talked about yet, and I don't think we really we alluded to it in our issue, but I don't think we teased it out, which is the reputation ranking part of platforms, right? That there is an identity system embedded in each of these platforms, often not well thought out, but it is the trust element, right? Why would I go into a stranger's car? Why would I stay in a stranger's home? And it's because the platform has built in this kind of identity infrastructure. A private sector organization can do that willy-nilly. But in the public sector, we got to take identity seriously. I think that's where Sumit is, is really hitting a really uh, uh, interesting design challenge. Uh, but also capacity issue when we think about where the public sector is at. Yeah, I mean, I guess I think about how empowering and protective pseudonyms can be on platforms in the sense that sure there's some back-end validation of who Vasiliki B is actually that shouldn't be my screen name maybe Vaseline like, <laughs> 55 my original Yahoo hotmail handle oh but you um, just outed yourself no, but <laughs> I guess it's like you want to create trust sure you know it's, it's to me, I'm hearing the question as is digital identity a vehicle for trust if you are engaging with a public sector worker, uh, a substitute teacher that you you feel sick, it's nighttime, you need to get a substitute teacher in tomorrow for your online class, how are you going to find them? Um, well, that's not that's probably some kind of more internal platform. And maybe it exists. Honestly, I don't I'm not deeply familiar with the mechanics of how how that happens. Uh, my understanding is it's kind of list based. Um, my hunch is it can be improved. Um, but out the gate, no, I don't see the digital identity integration as something that is a precondition to imagine these kind of platforms because the people hiring those kinds of services may also want some degree of anonymity. If my husband needs care because he's been in a bad accident and you know we need a nurse to come over a bunch of times, Maybe we don't want that associated with his name or my name in a, in a public domain situation, and that would be fine. I think there are a lot of good reasons for people not able to see that, right, in the in the review process. I don't know. You just made me excited about the potential for public platforms even more because for years I've been struggling and frustrated with how do we get government to take pseudonymity seriously. Yeah. Right? How, how do we support the idea that maybe controlled anonymity or responsible anonymity is an essential part of a democratic society, especially in a digital society? And I think you just gave us the back door that oh. by, by introducing platforms as mm -hmm. a legitimate public service delivery, as introducing platforms as an efficient means of resource allocation, we can also introduce the idea that pseudonymity is an asset. And that people deserve the right or the ability to obfuscate their identity in certain circumstances. Yeah, and let's also be honest. I mean, it's like, I think of OKCupid's okay policy change, right? Do you remember when they had that policy change of now you have to use your yeah. real name and, and the humans yeah. born against that? You know, again, zoom out. There's a particular hilarity with the pseudo-anonymity, like anything that's also associated with our face. Let's just use OKCupid okay for a second because I think it's a better 
uh, imaginary device, but you have pictures of yourself. You have information, broad information about yourself, the neighborhood you live in, maybe the type of profession you have. It's one of the least anonymous yeah. places to be. Yeah. But they offered people the ability to have a playful, you know, handle and then took that away. So, you know, again, benefits, harms, which what's outweighing kind of which side. And if you want to think about, you know, you're inviting someone into your home to provide care, medical care for a loved one or for, you know, a senior, you might want them to uh, speak a particular language, right? Now, is that is that does that start to open the door for discrimination or is that just a better use of the platform? Mm-hmm. These are the kinds mm-hmm. of conversations we could have as a public instead of, again, we haven't offloaded or shirked this. I think we missed the opportunity. So now we're being pushed because there are those, those private actors. The question is, what's the scale of the new question I'm throwing into the mix? Cause now I'm pivoting us. Here we go is, you know, do these platforms, Staffy, Bookchain, is their scale-up plan to be imported by government? Right. Because that's interesting too. And sometimes you see that, you know, a company's kind of growth plan is to be, you know, embedded, say, into the healthcare system typically. Yeah. But let's ask, is that a successful exit for government to purchase one of the platforms and sort of say, this is the one we're going to have? I don't know. But if well, I look at well, oh, your turn, your turn. And then no, no, go- I, I was just building on your point. I think you're onto something because I've always been critical of the kind of startup culture that says like we're just looking at the exit, right? We have no intention of of moving this business forward, of scaling it up. We just think that we will be an attractive acquisition target. And you've raised an entirely fascinating dynamic, which looks at the state or public sector organizations as potential exits, because here's where it gets even crazier. Because a few times today, you've legitimately raised the kind of, you know, if the public sector doesn't do it, the private sector is going to fill the void. At what point does the, 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 the network state, at what point does the corporate state start mm-hmm. becoming a viable alternative? Because all these entrepreneurs are creating these ideas which they intend for government, but government doesn't have the literacy or capability to recognize that. And so corporations with billions of dollars in cash reserves start gobbling up all these functions. And and that's how you get a privatized state, not through existing services being privatized, but through the startup ecosystem, right? Basically creating the, the, the fertile ground for this stuff to take place. Yeah, I think I think if you want to think about the risks to public government, I think there's more risk in like the Series A space yeah. that we could learn from. And you know, is a successful exit going to government? Uh, one way to look at a successful exit is you know a pilot that's proven itself. You've got mm-hmm. the concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, it works. It was invested in by outside actors. Would would that be palatable? Is there a universe where? Is there a universe where? The federal government uh, purchases maple. No, because they can't afford it. But, mm-hmm. you know, let's be honest. Maple is a better version of a national telemedicine platform. Mm-hmm. 
It has a different financial structure. It's growing. We herald it typically in Canada. We're like, oh my God, we've got this Canadian company. It's growing. That's great. It's it's cool. And I'm glad that they solved for that problem because guess what? Everyone agrees. It's great. It's slick. I think it's easy to use. I've clicked around it a bit. But we're not even having the public conversation of what are the implications of this for yeah. these other pro it's not even a program for these other services that we're trying to offer that don't have good uptake. Although, let me push back and say, actually, we are having that conversation right now. Yeah, okay. Yes, I I know you meant the collective we rather than the individual we, which which can be frustrating. And to your point, Sharita posted the comment, health gig platforms are a challenge to public health care. Right. And, and that is why this is such a fundamental policy question that needs to be happening in Parliament. Right. In in the public discourse. You know, we're having it here in Amazon's Parliament, a.k.a. Twitch, which, you know, anticipates this corporate state that 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 I fear that I worry about. But I, I want to, you know, uh, uh, David, sort of bring you into the conversation, uh, both to give you an opportunity to respond to anything you've heard so far. But we've been talking about healthcare a lot. And we've been, you know, on the one hand, talking about the patient experience of being able to have a, a care worker come to your home. And we talked about the worker perspective of maybe having a nurse sort of having their shift decided. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious if, David, if you see the potential for teamwork and for collaboration, given that, you know, a lot of your work and a lot of what you've turned me on to is that the more we age, the more we depend upon not single health professionals, but groups of health professionals who need to collaborate to figure out how to provide the best care, how to provide the best treatment paths. Again, respond to anything you've heard so far, but I'm curious if you see a teamwork or a collaboration potential. Yeah, I was... Go ahead. I was actually having my list of notes from the discussion so far um this idea and uh, so you know yeah a couple of years ago we did a social uh, or network analytics study of people who are involved in caring for older people at home and mm. we, and um you know we were testing the so for jesse's right but when you get become frail then the 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 network of care providers expands and um and the, the, the myth is that um, the older people are cared for by lots of others. They think we talk to one another, but we don't. And so we used uh, social network analysis to, do, to, te- to examine that. And what we, what we found was int- we found interesting networks, but mm. we were not able to confirm the hypothesis that we had expected, proposed, because older people don't think we talk to one another. Mm-hmm. They know that we don't. Mm-hmm. So, so a platform in which people who, um, you know, cared for the same person were able to connect with one another could be uh, a, um, a useful a useful thing. Although it very quickly gets tied up in privacy regulations and mm-hmm. you know, it's like a my chart for home care providers. I, I, I got I got I kind of got stuck on the PSW thing because. The last thing I did before I retired was do a training program for PSWs. And one of the things I discovered about PSWs, even though I've worked with PSWs all of my life, 
on an individual basis, getting people, getting a group of PSWs together, you find how, what enormous diversity there is and what implications would this great diversity have for platforms. So you have people from another country who are refugees and may have a PhD in biochemistry who are PSWs, and someone mm -hmm. from without who hasn't graduated from high school from Scarborough, uh, you know, um, who uh, you know has is um, is uh, you know a, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant all the way, um, both being required to do the to do the same thing. So a platform that could embrace this diversity uh, of uh, of users would be uh, would be uh, an interesting uh, challenge to think of. And, and then I was, I was um, thinking about the idea of the po power to PSWs and giving power to PSWs, they're, you know, underpowered people. Um, and, uh, you know, the idea of a PSW cooperative, but at the same time, I know that the, there are agencies whose fundamental purpose is to coordinate and lead and nav and, uh, and operate PSWs. PSWs don't have any, any, um, any agency or they have modest agency so and uh, you know a, a platform that allowed them to pick the neighborhoods in which they worked and the, the kinds of care, caregivers that they needed and the, the the you know we have PSWs might have to work in my neighborhood in the in the annex in Toronto and then the, their next client might be in um, might be um, you know several miles away across the city yeah because, yeah yeah. You know, this stuff isn't a match. But, you know, I was thinking, too, about matching, because matching is a bet noir for, I realize I'm thinking about um, PSWs too much, but it's yeah. bet noir for PSWs, because the, the, uh, users of PSWs don't have the right to choose which PSW they're going to have. Yeah. yeah. So matching PSWs with clients would be, I mean, I, mean, I once had a, a wonderful elderly lady that I looked after who was considerable racist and she was given a PSW whose name was Princess. Hmm. And we could, that idea of calling this black woman Princess for this racist older citizen uh, was an obstacle to, so how, you know, matching might be able to obviate that kind of stuff, even though it runs into all sorts yeah. of other things. But just before I shut up, um, the other thing I was thinking about was that, you know, these I've got some terms like crowdsourcing. Uh, for the first one was wave structures. Oh, question. Mm. And then algorithms. Well, I sort of know what those are. And then crowdsourcing. And then you said, well, crowdsourcing for getting info online. So I, mm. I mean, a light bulb came on that said, oh, well, so crowdsourcing is really just having other people help you find stuff. There's a there's a a, a non uh, a non new word for what crowdsourcing is. So I wondered, is there another word for wave structures, <laughs> or for uh, is, what would we call algorithms if we were just using natural language? Librarians. Is, is our, anyway. Automated librarians. Automated librarians. Yeah. yeah. I'll just be quiet now. Well, that was very well, good, David. Thank you. Fast. Go ahead. David, I love that you're coming back to worker-owned cooperatives too. I started taking a course on worker-owned cooperatives, but also it was the pandemic and then I just stopped going, which is really bad. So uh, my, my knowledge is stunted by myself. But I think the question then becomes, you know, 
who facilitates this new business structure for the workers, right? You know, it's not just digital literacy, it's some of those skills as well. And I'm fascinated yeah. by how, how we build that capacity to where we find that opportunity. Um, getting out of a pandemic context, just for the sake of our imaginations and for the moment, um, uh, Ottawa is the only city in Canada that has a centralized wait list for childcare. You know, vaccine hunters, there's a whole, you know, reality show you could do of people trying to find and secure uh, childcare. Why have we not, you know, I understand actually why we haven't built anything because it's not in the interest of any one private company from a childcare perspective. It's a nonprofit, mostly a nonprofit sector, really sim slim margins, highly individualized in terms of service provision, and you have a mix of licensed and unlicensed care providers, fine. But you still have those geographic considerations. You could have more uh, transparency on price. You could try to regulate price a little bit more. We often hear about the, the problem of price with childcare. And you could also get really good data that policymakers need. So we have the CCPA's uh, Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives annual survey that many people still complain, you know, understates the price because it's like a, a median price of childcare so that it obscures the price in urban centres. Again, it's an area where it's not clear whether it should be a private actor that would benefit from, from that kind of coordination. Would it help parents? Would it help childcare workers, ECEs? Would it help their business? Um, and what is the administrative cost of each childcare center maintaining a list of people that are have to gamify it or game it rather for themselves and be on tens I mean, I want to say hundreds of lists, but that's just to be, that's just to up the ante. I, I, I'd be hard probably to get on that many lists, but um, yeah, there's, that's more than a matching problem. That's also an information asymmetry problem that could be solved by building something. Um, and then it just comes down to who's going to build it. I think the public could build it and own it for citizens. I think it could be a sort of comparative advantage for municipalities, frankly, to be like, it's not just so, the price for childcare, but you're going to, you're going to be able to get it and choose if you live here. I'm down. So, so let me, let me throw just a couple of comments from the chat. I mean, yeah. uh, Sumit earlier pointed out to your point, Jesse, platforms can be leveraged for distributed innovation that I feel is a lost opportunity the public sector isn't tapping into yet. And Charita pointed out that facilitating co-op development is often done by a federal or provincial co-op associations, which then made me think vast to your point that maybe there's a role for, say, the uh, uh, Rural Ontario Municipal Association or the Federation of Canadian Municipalities or the types of associations that connect these types, types of groups. Sumit then posted in response, Vast. Uh, to your point, just made me think about how your proposed model could benefit the farmers conversation happening in India around how agricultural co-ops can be managed. And, and Sumit, that is an absolutely fantastic point. You know, we've been covering the Indian farmers protest here to the best of our ability. And, and part of it is that the farmers feel that they don't have the negotiating capacity to deal with big agriculture, global corporations. And that's where co-ops could provide that scale. And yet I think what we're sort of imagining today is that a co-op combined with a platform 
is kind of more than a co-op, right? Like that, yeah. like the, the whole point of Uber, the whole point of Airbnb, the whole point of platforms is that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. That there is a network effect to platforms. That means that they are more than just a union. They're more than just a co-op. They have new capabilities and new capacities. And what I've been trying to articulate today is one example is pure wages. That a platform controlled by a union, I hypothesize, could be far more successful at increasing wages than a union just negotiating in collective bargaining and using strikes. And, and I don't have anything to back that up. And it's a hypothesis that I will try to explore in the future. But it's me suggesting that maybe the whole value of platforms to the public sector is the network effects. And is the fact that they enable capabilities, they enable features and services that were not previously possible because of scale, but also because of the technology behind platforms in terms of indexing, matchmaking, and discovery. Again, this is me trying to synthesize all the different thoughts we're getting on this. But I, I kind of feel that we're, you know, if we go back to the original premise of what is the potential for public platforms, to assume its point, I, I think we're all agreeing it's substantive and it's huge. Yeah. So, so what needs to happen next? Like, uh, and I'll ask that on a twofold question, a kind of utopian big sky and uh, practical baby steps. So on a utopian big sky, you know, if uh, uh, the prime minister's office or if the Privy Council office called you up today and said, Vass, you know, we, we read your newsletter. We, we watched your chat on the MetaViews show. Yeah. You know, what, what should we be doing here? What, what, how, how do we really get this going? And how do we start mobilizing towards making this a reality? Well, I mean, I will be downloading the budget on April 19th and doing what everyone else does with the PDF, which is pressing control F and looking for the stuff you <laughs> like. And I'm going to be very curious around what we see with this phrase, digital public architecture. I don't know, or infrastructure. I like the word architecture. That's just me. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's how I troll my husband, who's an architect, by saying that I'm also an architect. So separate issue. Um, no, what, what I would say is there are tremendous leadership opportunities for Canada to invest in publicly owned um platform infrastructure that's relevant to public sector workers and that we could have intellectual property wins there and you know as well it doesn't mean that just because it's you know owned uh by the canadian government that we can't also commercialize that that we can't license it that we can't give it to other jurisdictions but again you know maybe it is a, a non-profit model maybe it is a super affordable um uh piece of technology to integrate it's that's all part of the reimagining as well mm -hmm. it's imagining that employment relationship and kind of the role of the state but also the ability to capture the benefits of innovation that all too often we relegate to the private sector um, and we kind of write off the public sector's uh, ability and opportunity to capture those things I, and i'd be like guys thanks for calling me like that's so nice and i appreciate you subscribing to Rex to Riches. Yeah. Right on. Now, on the kind of baby steps. Oh, yeah. You know, what do you and I say this both in the narrow sense of like us as in you and I, but in the broader sense of the 
the the fellow weirdos, nerds, and policy wonks who are into this stuff, you know, what can we do in our own modest way to kind of move this forward and develop it so that when our friends in the PMO or the PCO kind of tune into this, you know, we're we're able to really give them the kernel or the seed to 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 get this thing growing. Um, I think it would be powerful to invite people to a kind of design jam and to have an output that actually gets closer to like a briefing note or a document of different approaches we heard, what could the structures be, uh, to kickstart more conversation, to have something that can be circulated, that can be riffed from, so nobody's starting from a blank page. Mm -hmm. And also recognize, yeah, it's not about waiting for public actors to totally take this on by themselves. There is a role for for us as citizens, for people who have that kind of work experience, even better understanding where the matching challenges are, where the inequities exist, where the, again, administrative burden is unnecessarily high. Let's solve for that. And given that we're anticipating, uh, not to keep making a lot of federal budget, but long overdue childcare announcements, I think digital public infrastructure for childcare is, is part of, part of, uh, perpetuating the delusion that we actually have a system in that regard. Because then you'd actually be able to say, this is what the system looks like, yeah. right? Instead of this, like, um, yeah, path. Well, well, no, but I think you raise an interesting point, both in terms of the budget, but also in terms of childcare. Because on the one hand, we are about to see the biggest budgets ever. Right. In the United States, in Canada, this is unprecedented government spending. And childcare is such a tangible example because of all the parents who've been stuck with their kids on and off over the last year, who I think tangibly have been able to demonstrate the value of universal childcare, both for yeah. the economy, but also for people's mental health. And yet, we can anticipate whether it's from the right or whether it's from the left concerns around fiscal spending concerns around efficiency of these programs and so it strikes me that that's where platforms can come in to address the resource allocation to address the matchmaking to even potentially introduce issues of accountability so i, I think you're right i think you're spot on in in that your instincts are telling you on the one hand the budget is a policy opportunity but I think it's also a, a technology opportunity when we think of platform as tool and the role that that platform can play in, in a period of unprecedented government spending, necessary government spending, but contentious government spending, because it, it will be minority government or not. It is going to be, uh, especially in the United States, given like Biden's infrastructure plan is like ludicrous and i say that in a good sense right it's welcome but it will also be met with incredible opposition and contention so i kind of based on today's conversation i kind of anticipate that platforms are going to play a role in that and if they don't then i think they're wrong sorry david you wanted to jump in oh, i was just going to say yeah it's interesting you mentioned biden and the infrastructure plan but he doesn't call it an infrastructure plan it's a jobs plan yeah so i think i think um, Vasiliki is right in the sense that uh, the um, the, the uh, childcare issue in the budget is is a compelling and timely opportunity, but we're not going to be selling platforms. We're going to be selling better childcare. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, look, platform is just the way to get it. But we're not selling. We're not trying to convince people that platforms are good. Well, go ahead, Vass. No, sorry. I mean, I I think it's part of part of answering to say to 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 say with any kind of legitimacy that we are building uh, a child care system. Yeah, I think are curious, curious, like, what is the infrastructure of that? What does it look like? And let's be real, we haven't, to my mind, and maybe I'm wrong, but I don't mind being wrong, we've not elected a civic technologist yet in Canada. That will revolutionize some of our public discourse as well. I feel like we're on the cusp of that. It's on the horizon. But Uh we're to be asking our political leaders more and more, you know, what have you built? What What have you facilitated? What can you you, you know, what's your imagination? And that's a way to demonstrate it. I mean, if you you ask them now, I think, you know, this may be a sweeping generalization, but if you were asked them questions now, their mind would all, would turn to things that screwed up. Yes. And and I think David, you know, you're, where, where you're earlier, you were talking about language, right? And rolling the words back and using the kind of phrases that are more evergreen or timeless. I think that has to be part of this design jam, right? That, that part of, we take for granted the jargon we use to describe platforms. And I think that we need to unlock the values and meaning that are in that jargon and roll it back into more accessible language. Because I I do feel that we don't need to sell platforms to the public. I think there is a role in using jargon and technical language to infect the senior civil service and infect the political class with the potential for public platforms. But if they are going to be successful in then turning around and, and making that accessible to the public, then perhaps part of our job as architects, as designers, is to come up with a new vocabulary that describes everything about platforms that attracts us, but does so in a, a, a much more accessible form and, and, in, and in a universal form so that that public sector worker instantly goes, yes, that's how I'm getting paid more money. And the person who needs care says, yes, that's how I'm getting the care person who's going to be responsive to me. And the bureaucrat says, yes, that's how we're going to make sure we get efficient resource allocation without everyone getting their own, you know, politicized interpretation of the jargon we use. Does that make sense, David? Yeah, oh, it does. I was thinking that uh, you know, a few years back now, I, I think I got eight million bucks from the uh, Ontario government to do to teach geriatrics in primary care. But I went to the minister at the time and said, "And said we want to do, I want to teach these, I want to teach geriatrics." And he said, "Well, we're not into geriatrics. We're into, but we are into family health teams." And I said, well, family health teams, um, you can't just put people together to be a team. They need skills. They're a lot like the skills that are required to care for an older, frail, older person. You let me and my team teach family health teams how to be teams, and I'll do that for you. If you let me at the same time teach them how to care for frail seniors. And so we had a, 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 a an acceptance yeah, yeah. That would not have, have happened otherwise. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and it makes me wonder, how does one embed such nuance into a platform? 
that allows for that type of uh, value exchange, that allows for that type of mission exchange, which I, and I only ask that because I, I wonder if you can't, right? I, and that's where, as an aside, to preview a future session we may do, I'm obsessed with hybrid systems that combine automation and human, that combine the, uh, the automatic side of a platform with an animator, with a librarian, with, with an actual human who can introduce that, that kind of nuance. Uh, Vass, you wanted to jump in? Uh, I was just gonna say that I think uh, MetaView should make a pre-budget submission next time there's a go-around. No, and, and to provincial to provincial budgets as well. Like there, there are these like hyper-formalized vehicles to share ideas and I appreciate the informal ones too, but I, I think it would be cool to write something up on, on public platforms and, and pitch it in that way to government. So I'll help you with it if you want to do that. I, I was going to say, I'd be happy to, but I definitely, uh, you know, it, it's almost like I'm wearing the sunglasses uh, on purpose, even though it's more because the lights. Uh, assume that you'd be leading the blind, right? That, that I would literally have no way to navigate through uh, such a budgetary process. But yes, if if I had a guide, I'd be happy to say, yes, money there, not money there. Yes, money there, not money there. Yeah. And, and it would be also, I think, an interesting exercise in how could the process be more participatory and, and more accessible and more inclusive? Because I like how municipal governments play with participatory budgets, but I'm not sure I've seen that on a provincial or federal level, perhaps because of the scale and money involved. But I think that would be a, a very interesting idea. Um, awesome. Any other final thoughts from either of you before we conclude what has been an otherwise fantastic session? Then with that said, I mean, I'll thank you both. I will also thank our friends who've joined us in the chat. Uh, in particular, Sharita, Sumit, Chris, uh, Nuvayak, Mike, uh, Panda, I believe you've also been lurking. I forgot to turn the stream avatars on. One, one of the reasons I use the stream avatars is it lets me know who's actually lurking and hanging out. Uh, but thanks to all of you for tuning in. I thought this was uh, a really uh, fantastic and rich conversation. Uh, thanks again, uh, Vass. I, I, as always, enjoy collaborating with you. And I find in these conversations, it really elevates not just my understanding of these issues, but my understanding of other issues that are kind of adjacent and connected to it. And of course, uh, I was gonna say, and of course, David, thank you also for your participation. Uh, you, you always remind me, A, to avoid sweeping generalizations, but when I do want to indulge in a sweeping, a, a sweeping generalization to at least identify it as such. Sorry, Vass, you were gonna say? No, I was just nodding along and, and smiling at David. <laughs> <laughs>